Hello and welcome to Thriving in the Age of Disruption. Today, Dr. Ramesh has on her show a man who is not just his words, a man of true actions, of rigor and sincerity. Dr. Ton van der Velden is a medical doctor originally from Holland with over 30 years experience working on sexual and reproductive health system strengthening across Asia. Today, he calls Hanoi in Vietnam home, where he has founded and runs home nursing care agencies. Those who know Ton will find him unflappable. He doesn't flinch in face of danger and crisis. Rather, he simply presses firmly on, working to solve problems to make the world a more humane place. We're glad you're here to join Dr. Ramesh to hear Ton's story in his own steadfast voice. Ton, welcome to the Thriving in the Age of Disruption podcast series. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. And I wanted to start off by having you introduce yourself to our listeners. Please share about your background and family and where you're living. I'm a medical doctor. I was born and raised and educated in Holland for the most part. And after my internships and residencies, I started work for Doctors Without Borders, first in Somalia, very briefly, and then later in Cambodia. And that was supposed to be a brief job, but I ended up staying in Cambodia for eight years while I made the transition from being a medical doctor, a surgeon, and going to more public health-oriented work. I did a lot of consulting in the region, mostly in Southeast Asia. And then when I was in my early 40s, I met this wonderful woman, settled down, married, and we lived and worked in Egypt for a number of years. I had two daughters there, moved to Vietnam, had a son there. And we've stayed in Vietnam working for nonprofits for about 10 years. After those 10 years, there really wasn't a lot of need for my kind of nonprofit work. And we started for-profit home care. Thank you very much for that comprehensive introduction and preview into the different things that you have done in your life before you have now become an entrepreneur. I recently wrote an updated version of the book I wrote about 20 years ago. I say that more than starting and running a business, which is entrepreneurship, what is critical in today's age is to have an entrepreneurial mindset. And I define entrepreneurial mindset as someone who is being resourceful in life. So if you have a problem, you're trying to figure out what to do how to pivot, how to adapt. You're also then able to deal with uncertainty or manage risk. But most importantly, you're able to bring value to creating something which was not there before. You've had this journey where you've moved from being a medical doctor to someone who went into public service and consulting work and then to NGO work and now to being an entrepreneur. What was that whole motivation in all these moves? Let's start in Cambodia where I ended up in the early mm. 90s after my residency years. I was doing basic surgery and obstetrics and gynecology there in a provincial hospital and training Cambodian doctors. That was very much, if you will, medicine on a retail basis, providing one-on-one -on -one care. I distinctly remember doing a cesarean section for a woman and it was her 13th pregnancy. This was a very poor family. In tears, she asked me before the cesarean if I could please make it so that she didn't have any more children. Mm. And so, of course, I did a tubal ligation at the same time. For her, that was a very important moment that she was no longer tied to her reproductive role in life, that there were other possibilities. That inspired me to start a small family planning program in the province where I was working. At the time, that was not particularly easy 
because Cambodia still had no family planning program. In fact, there was a policy to grow the population as fast as possible. For me, that was a moment where I thought, well, I can keep doing medicine on a retail basis and one on one doctor, one patient. But maybe what I should be doing is do more of these family planning programs and work more in public health because I'd be able to reach more people. That idea of reaching scale was very attractive to me, to be able to have more of an impact on the world around me. And so I went back to school and did a master's in public health and was fairly convinced that investment in family planning, birth control, and also female education is really the key to helping people, not just in healthcare, but also in lifting them out of poverty and emancipating and strengthening females. So that was the next 30 years or so of my life I've spent in trying to start up and strengthen family planning programs. Wow, that's really inspiring. The ramification of the business as usual way in which people reproduce and the impact that it has on communities, especially women burdened with that as a primary role and how it is also part of their empowerment and emancipation when we can give them choices. Absolutely. It's a huge factor in how a woman's life plays out, how much control she has over her reproduction, number of children she has and the timing that she has them at. It, it has a huge impact not only on her family life, but also on her career, on her working life, on the amount of money that she can earn, that she can then use to feed, house, clothe, and educate the children. It has an immense impact. And I find myself after 25 years, in 2015, I think, living in Vietnam with three kids in school, and they don't want to move. They're happy. They've lived their whole life here pretty much. And the Vietnamese family planning program is running on rails. It's a well-organized, well-executed government program. And there's not a lot of need for my services anymore. And I look around together with my partner, Ron, and we recognize that there's another sector of the population that really is vastly underserved and that it's mainly the elderly and particularly in home care. There is no organized home care part to the health sector. There are no companies, there are no nursing agencies. So we started a company to provide those services. So from 2015 till now, what have been some of the ups and downs or the challenges that you've had to navigate? The Biggest challenge, obviously, is that it's not just starting a home nursing care agency. It's starting a whole new business sector. And it's a business sector that nobody is particularly familiar with, not in the regulatory agencies. So it took us uh, almost two years before we figured out what the licenses were under which we could provide the service. The rest of the medical sectors, the hospitals don't know it. Our people in hospitals are not familiar with referring patients to home care agencies when they need more care after they discharge the patient. Families are not familiar with the concept, and so they don't know to call when they have somebody who needs care at home. There are many, many people who need this sort of care, but the demand is still quite small because people are not familiar with it. I think that's the biggest barrier, if you will. You've correctly pointed out you're creating a whole new industry, which was not there before. And as the early entrant to the market, you've got to educate and create the need. And uh, the people who will come behind you as your competitors will have it much easier because you're paving the way by creating that whole model or the need from the consumers for this kind of services. Yeah, that's true. Well, we're creating it in Vietnam, but of course, there are many countries around the world that already have thriving home nursing care sectors. So it's not something we're inventing. Yes. It's just something we're trying to port over into a country that doesn't have. That's right. We'd be happy to have some serious competitors. 
the amount of work that is available is enormous. And if there were more companies jumping into this and trying to educate the population and also the rest of the medical sector, this is available and it's an important service to lean on. I think the rising tide of, of recognition would lift all the boats. That's true. Where are your clinics or facilities available right now in Vietnam? Right now we're in two largest cities in Vietnam, in Hanoi and in Ho Chi Minh City. Right. What's the aspiration in the next two to three years? We'd certainly like to expand to a couple of other provinces with new, but also we'd like to expand within those two cities with some smaller nursing stations that are closer to the community where the staff can become familiar with the local community and the community leaders and become a community asset, if you will. What you're talking about is not the traditional kind of nursing care whereby I would be in a hospital or a facility, but really someone is actually coming to my home That's and right. taking care of me, depending on what I'm dealing with. It can be a 24-hour shift. It can be a partial, maybe the night shift, or it can be just coming to attend to a wound or maybe doing some specific tests, depending on what my needs are. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. Good description. It ranges from 24-hour palliative care to people who are close to dying to dropping in once every month to check on somebody's blood pressure. I wish you had this service in Singapore. In Singapore also, there are a number of people trying to start this up. It's not just the, the fact that population at large or the rest of the healthcare sector is not familiar with the model. It's also not easy to find nurses who are able to do it since they're in countries like Singapore or Vietnam where the model doesn't exist. The nurses are also not trained to do it that way. And so nurses graduate unfamiliar with this kind of work. That's right. But then when I look at my aging mother mm -hmm. and the fact that I have full-time work, sometimes having that professional or medical care at home makes it really comfortable for her as well as myself. And knowing that I can call on such a service is, I think, very important, especially as countries, communities, and societies confront aging. I think that group that confronts aging in place is only growing. People are, on average, getting older, are confronted with longer chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension, stroke, cancer, all that time that people are sick with those conditions, they really don't want to spend too much time in hospitals. Hospitals are dangerous places. That's where the dangerous bacteria live. Taking care of these conditions can be done with some caveats at home quite well. I also love the fact that your business is serving the underserved, as you said, and right. it's really very noble. And it's also part of the sustainable developmental goals to be able to democratize and have healthcare be affordable and available to the mass market or even the poorer segments of the market. Why did you think about that? I've spent most of my working life in nonprofit companies where the director of nonprofits, you train yourself, if you will, to look around you and to try to see, well, what is a problem within my competency, within my mandate that I recognize in society? Can we do something about that? Can I find a donor who's interested in that? Let's try to mount a program. Let's try to get other people interested in this and let's try to make the world a little bit better place. That's sort of your job as a director of an NGO. And so that's a working habit that is by now fairly deeply ingrained. 
how do you deal with crisis? I say that a crisis is a kind of setback that we encounter. We get to a turning point and either we die or we can adapt and pivot to the next pathway. I'm sure you've had some setbacks that you've had to deal with. And what had you be successful in dealing with such setbacks? That's a difficult question. I <laughs> frankly led a very charmed life. Thank God. Knock on wood. I mean, by yes. and large, I'm happily married. I've got three healthy kids. I managed to have enough money to live on. I haven't had many personal crises. I mean, I've had a couple of moments of personal danger and things like that. But you're pointing to something interesting. Maybe it's a way you look at life that has you either be more future orientated or when something comes to you, you don't make a big deal about it and label it as a crisis and you just move on. I think that's true. I'm this kind of person who goes, oh, this is the situation we're in. What is the best way to deal with that? What is a reasonable, equitable, effective way of getting out of this? I am not easily upset anymore by a flat tire or crises in business. I'm like, oh, okay. Could be worse. What are we going to do about it? One of your questions was, how would people describe you? And asked my wife, the first thing that she'd come up with was unflappable and calm. I don't flap easily. For me, when something happens, I would think about, okay, what is my responsibility here? What can I do to mitigate this? Who are affected? How can I help? It's not particularly good or bad. It's just is. Maybe it would be better to be more engaged, but I'm not, so. Yeah, but it's perfect because when you don't make it a big deal, it's not that focus for you, then you can get about in life without having to be burdened by it. That's also there's a that. great perspective. If there's nothing I can do about it, as a doctor, when your patients die, which invariably happens, you have to examine that and you have to think about, well, is there anything I could have done to take better care of this patient? Is there a better therapy? Could I have been a warmer doctor, more empathetic doctor, a technically better doctor? Should I have done the operation differently? And if you decide that, no, you pretty much did what you could, then that's it. Then you let it go. And so it's the same with crisis. You do what you can. And if you feel that you've done everything you can, then you deal with the consequences. So beautifully said. I think people should not overthink crisis too and yeah. make it a big deal. Right. That's actually another alternative perspective. I don't easily or quickly label something a crisis. That's great advice, not to label something as a crisis. Yeah, don't overthink it. Don't ruminate on it. Don't think too much about the negative consequences. Think about what you can do moving forward. Very good. It's all framed by this big perspective. Let's move on. Let's find a solution. Let's not right. label things, belabor it or make it a negative consequence. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's down to earth, being practical about it and really focused on what you want to make happen. Yeah. Not to look too far into the future, not to think too much about what might have been. The flip side of that is also not to look at these huge, enormous goals in your life and try to reach them more like, okay, so this is what I'm faced with today. This is what's right in front of me. Let's tackle that and we'll see how we get through that first. Can you share a little bit about your view about spirituality and where you are on your spiritual journey? I define myself as a secular humanist. It's part of my belief system. We shouldn't be causing unnecessary pain or harm or suffering. And where we can, we should try to ease or relieve that pain or suffering. That is part of my value system. Thank you for your definition of what spirituality is to you. It's very congruent with what you've been doing over the years in the different activities that you've done. 
Do you have advice for young people who are looking for their place in the world, either in management, in leadership, or in business? What would be the key things that they could do? I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's a late 80s comedy movie. And the key phrase in that movie is be excellent to each other. That phrase is always stuck by me. And I think that's probably not bad advice. As I said, I'm a secular humanist. And so that means... For me, as a human being, we all have inherent value and our value doesn't come from how productive we are or how thoughtful or how kind we are to each other. We have value simply because we are humans. The basis underlying what we know as human rights, that comes from the recognition that humans have value and importance. So from that flows a responsibility for yourself and for each other. You have a responsibility facing humanity the ethical consequences of your own decisions. I think of that as consequential ethics. I don't judge things being ethical or not other than what their consequences are. And so that means you don't cause pain or harm. And it is upon you to ease or relieve the pain and suffering of others and work to increase health and happiness and well-being in our communities. Fight for justice. Be caring. I find that if you do that, and I encapsulate that by saying be excellent to each other. And I find if I try to keep that stance in my life, then on a day-to-day -day basis, I think about what roles do I have in my life? So I'm a company director. Sure. I'm a husband. Absolutely. I'm a father. I'm a friend. And for all of those roles, I look at what I think my stance is in life. What sort of a husband do I want to be? What sort of a book do I want to be? What sort of a company do I want to lead? And what can I do this week to move that just a little bit? Figure out what your values are and what roles you have in life and then how you can further those values in each of those roles on a day-to-day -day basis. And don't worry too much about the far future, but look at the things that are right in front of you. So what can I do this week that is congruent with my values that helps me to become a better whatever it is you are? Wow, you've decoded it quite simply to figure out what your values are. Yeah, figure out what your values are. What is important for you? What is it that you find worth fighting for, working on, arguing in, in favor of? And then combine that with who are you in your life? What roles do you have in your mm -hmm. life? And mm -hmm. a husband that or father or friend or musician, whatever it is, right. figure out how you can apply those values in those roles for the next week in the short term. Wow. Okay, so let me... Summarize that, that is figure out what values you have, what's important to you, yeah. what are the roles that you're playing right now in mm. life, whether it's as a father, a sister, a company director, and then what is it that you have in front of you? You don't have to overthink about the future, it's the opportunity is right here in front. Right. Yeah. What is it that you can do in the coming week to be a better father? Thank you very much. Do you think people can live a simple life? It depends on your definition of a simple life. I think leading a simple life in terms of I'm buying a plot of land, starting a vegetable garden and a bunch of chickens, and I'm no longer engaging. I think, yes, you can. I don't think it's particularly ethical. So in that sense, yes, you can live a simple life, but I don't think I would want to, at least not for the next 20 years or so, maybe when I'm in my 80s. I think you can live a thoughtful life, what Socrates called a, an examined life. Look at who you are, what are the root causes of your behaviors, what are the patterns and the consequences of my life, and how do I improve those? So a simple life, simple in the sense of economically simple, I think it's almost impossible nowadays. Simple in the sense of isolating, I think wouldn't be 
ethical. I think we all have a responsibility to engage, to be part of a community. I love the fact about being part of a community. It's our duty. As human beings, we've evolved within communities. And so much of our psychology needs that human connection. I think you would be doing yourself a disfavor if you're not part of a community. That's the one side. And the other side, you have the responsibility to reach out, to be supportive and empathetic and help improve your own community. You talk about what I describe as a reciprocal altruism. And I've found that in family businesses, that's actually one of their core strengths when mm -hmm. they are thriving, which is that they are able to set aside their individual differences and their needs to do for that common good of all. But then it gets lost over time as well. This whole notion of reciprocal altruism is somewhat missing by and large in our society these days. I would like to see a resurgence of that kind of connection as well as a collective focus. And this is what I'm passionate about. Our consulting work is geared around it mm -hmm. in getting companies to embrace this notion of what they can do to work as a collective versus right. an individual. There's been an interesting body of research built up over the last, I'd say 15 or 20 years about happiness, about what makes you happy. This is solid sociological, psychological research. One of the main findings is that those who put their life's work in service of something bigger than themselves turn out to be happier than others by and large. You mentioned the sustainable development goals. People who say, well, I'm going to do something about poverty worldwide. And it doesn't matter if you do it as a doctor or as an engineer or as you who's working with rice cultivation. It doesn't matter what role you have. If you have a sense that what you're doing is contributing to a bigger goal, those are the people who tend to be happier. That's simply a sense because we have evolved to live in communities. If you feel that you are an active part of this community, improving, supporting and strengthening your community, that gives us a sense of well-being. Altruism isn't even what I'm looking for. There's a selfish aspect to it and it's a good aspect. Mm, it is for our own benefit. Yeah, it definitely is. People are altruistic because it makes you happy. That is true. If you had to use three words to describe thriving, what would be those three words? Thriving. Well, I would say people by and large thrive when they're an, an important or essential part of a warm community. And that's an important thing for me. And then be honest with yourself about what your values are. Uh, try to formulate them and try to live your life accordingly. I think if you do that as part of a community, then you're a long way on that road to thriving. Wow, that's very good. What's sustainability for you? What do you observe about the world today in its movement towards sustainability? I would answer that like most people nowadays would answer that. We're using our natural resources in a considered manner in such a way that we're not running them out for future generations. As a father, I believe strongly in that. But at the same time, it's a very frustrating that so little of our current societies are sustainable. That's right. In our work, we take on the definition that sustainability is the ongoing thriving of a living system. It starts off with each and every one of us as individuals, the kind of mindset that we have around ourselves as a system and how we interact with the community at large. Right. This goes back to the responsibility towards the community that we talked about. We have a responsibility, I think, all of us, particularly those of us who live in the Western world, 
consume more than our fair share. We have a responsibility towards the larger community in the world to do that in a responsible and sustainable way. That's right. And how do you see your healthcare startup contributing towards this whole aspect of sustainability? We're not really in the business of trying to mitigate global warming or sustainable resources. And it's a different field, if you will. Yes. We'll try to be cautious of consensus in city consumption and things like that. There are 17 sustainable developmental goals. Mm-hmm. And some of them talk about equality and human rights. So when you're serving the communities who don't have access to equal medical care or something from that perspective, then it becomes very much consistent with that whole sustainability focus, but from a different aspect. That's right. If you're looking at it with a broader perspective of what sustainability means, then, then yes, I think we certainly fit in. The, the notions of healthcare for all definitely reverberate within me and, and within the people that I work with. And especially because so many people that you talk to here in Vietnam about this business, they say, oh, I really needed that for my father. Or I really needed that for my mother. The number of people who need this kind of service, this kind of care is really significant. And I think that it's a massively underserved group of people. Right. In that sense, we're trying to contribute to sustainable development, if you will. That's right. I've appreciated our conversation. You've given me food for thought. Ton, I want to thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation too. Yeah, I have. One thing that you should do as a secular humanist is always examine ideologies and ideas and thrash them about to see if they remain standing. So to look at my own life and see if it holds up in that sense <laughs> is always a useful thing. I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ton's story. When he shares glimpses into his way of thinking and how he lives his life with purpose, he's offering us a dose of reality tinged with hope based on altruism and service. This is a timely reminder of the inherent value and potential of every human being. If you're interested to learn more about the entrepreneurial mindset, check out Dr. Ramesh's book, The Big Jump into Entrepreneurship 2.0. Simply click on the Amazon link provided in the podcast description. In addition, Dr. Ramesh will be launching her new book on crisis-ready mindset in the first half of this year. Make sure you follow Dr. Ramesh on LinkedIn so you'll get her new book alert. Next up, we move over to Bangkok in Thailand to hear from Dr. Nisha Kohli, who's ESG sustainability ecosystem focused. 